Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the PBSL podcast. I'm Reese. I'm Emma. And I'm Ashpin. And today we're joined here with Sandra, who's going to tell us a bit about agroecology. And if you want to quick introduce yourself. Sure. Um, I'm Sandra. I'm the grad assistant for the PBSL program, and I'm excited to talk to you all today. But before we get into that, we want to start with our good news fact. Um, Ashpin, if you want to go into that. Yeah, so the good news for this week is, well, it's not really recent news, but um, as I found the story in Planet Detroit, and it was talking about how Detroit has a bigger opportunity to be a player in regional water issues um, since the mayor, Mike Duggan, announced uh, a couple months ago that the city was going to be joining a collaboration of Great Lakes mayors that lobbies the federal government on water infrastructure issues. And this is pretty important because uh, historically Detroit has been kind of absent from like conferences about the Great Lakes and water infrastructure. And also that a lot of people hope that it's gonna help address a lot of water shutoff issues in the city itself. Yeah, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing. Um, But without further ado, I think Sandra, if you wanna get into introducing the topic and going to it. Sure, thanks Reese. Um, so to start us off, I just wanted to kind of go over um, what is agroecology and the definition of it, and then we'll kind of transition into some discussion of cool things that are happening in the field. Um, but just so we're all on the same page, agroecology is the study of ecological processes applied to agricultural production systems. So kind of in less fancy terms, this is the study of um, a farm's ecosystem and how everything is connected and can work with nature. Um, But I kind of feel like this definition doesn't cover all of it. So the science of agroecology also covers some social movements as well. Um, So you'll see a lot of issues of labor rights, access to food, food justice, all kind of intertwined within this study. Um, So that's just kind of a very simple definition. There's a lot more that could be put in there, um, but just to start us off. um, And I thought, I was curious, what do you you all think of as kind of conventional agriculture? Because that's kind of, in my view, the opposite of agroecology. I was just curious what comes to mind for you guys. I guess for me, um, as a child, I went to my grandma's house often and right across the street was a big corn field that like alternate between corn and soybeans and so that's really what my perspective like through my experience of what farming really was especially in the United States um that's kind of what I got from it yeah definitely I think um particularly in the midwest we see a lot of corn and soy fields um those are definitely kind of the monoculture crops that do really well in this region um Emma and Ashman do you guys have any ideas that you wanted to add? Yeah, I was going to say when I think of conventional agriculture, I think of driving through the Midwest and seeing like the corn um, because I'm from Illinois. So I'm used to seeing like the corn and the soybean fields like right next to each other and watching the corn get really tall every year. So that's what I think of um, when I think of conventional agriculture. Yeah, I think same for me. Um, I just think of these huge like thousand acre farms just all growing one crop. I thought it was really interesting that your definition 
had the concept of thinking about farming as its own ecosystem. That's not something I've ever heard before. So I'm really interested to hear more about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's something um, that I really enjoy learning about this field um, is kind of applying that ecology lens to a farm. There's so much going on, um, even in a farm that's growing, you know, one variety of corn, um, there's still a lot that's going on in that whole system. Because um, I think we, we want to try and control nature a lot in conventional agriculture. Um, but as you guys probably have seen that there's a lot of things that are going on in that whole entire system. And so I don't know, um, recent Emma, if you ever saw them like spraying those fields with either a pesticide or a fertilizer at any point. Um, but that's kind of a method of control. Um, but as we've seen, you know, that only works so much. Um, and so that's why they kind of go back every year. Um, and it's kind of, there's a lot of mini cycles involved with that, um, which I find really interesting. So I was also curious for maybe if you guys have read a little bit about it, but what are some issues that come to mind when you think about conventional agriculture? What are some problems associated with how this impacts the environment? I think the first thing that I think about is um, soil health um, and just like the way that conventional agriculture doesn't really have a focus on maintaining the health of the soil um, and the way that that can cause like major issues in the future. I also think of just about like the amount of pesticides that go into conventional agriculture because I know a lot of like new farming movements are anti-pesticides so I, I definitely associate the pesticides and the chemicals and the unsustainable practices with conventional agriculture. Yeah when I think of especially with the pesticides I kind of feel like conventional agriculture is a bit of a clown show kind of held together by uh, like duct tape and and like masking tape because I feel like every single problem that that you encounter when you are performing conventional agriculture like the the solution just causes even more problems especially with uh, for example pesticides where since you have your whole uh, since your since your whole farm is a monoculture there's not really much built-in security against pesticides because it's like all one plant or not sorry not pesticides insects or pests so then you just spray the whole thing with pesticides and it messes up the soil even more which makes it even harder for the ecosystem as a whole to like protect itself against pests yeah totally and i think um so what you've highlighted ashwin is this idea of the pesticide treadmill. So the idea of like, let's spray the field to get rid of all the pests so that we can grow more corn or more, more soy. Um, and then what happens is we have pests that either become resistant to that spray and come back and are even stronger, creating a very large different problem, or it's gonna start impacting, you know, the bird species that rely on eating those pests um, and so then that can throw off a whole other cycle within the ecosystem um, and I really like your analogy of kind of just duct taping all of these problems and kind of hoping that we can outpace it with technology um, and I think that's where agroecology comes in as a very stark comparison of really listening to nature and how can we use nature to help grow the food that we need to eat and survive. 
Um, so yeah, that's a huge problem is pesticides. Another one that I wanted to talk about too is kind of fertilizers as well as another big thing that we spray um, because we've eliminated the nutrients in the soil that Emma was talking about. Um, and especially in Michigan, um, we see that these fertilizers are running off into waterways. And I don't know if you guys saw the pictures last year of Lake Erie, which was like bright green and kind of those algal blooms that were happening from the fertilizers that's running off of farms. I also kind of heard about because of the way that conventional agriculture seeks to manipulate the land instead of like when you're growing your crops you usually like cut down all the trees you you like shape the your farmland into a very specific way that you want it instead of planting your crops like as the land is and that also makes it harder for the crops to grow I think the example I know is like coffee where a lot of coffee farms are built on deforested land but then coffee also kind of needs shade to grow but of course you've cut down all the trees so now there's no shade so what they resort to is just using like tons and tons of fertilizer so yeah just another example of like you create a problem and then you hope to just solve it with chemicals right yeah I'm so happy you brought up coffee um because that's actually one of the really exciting things going on with agroecology as an alternative is keeping those trees. And so you'll see on some coffee farms that they're actually growing fruit trees and all these other crops that can also be sold um, or consumed. Um, and they provide shade for the coffee trees. So it's kind of this cool way to grow a variety of things, but also maintain a little bit more of that natural like forest ecosystem while still growing coffee um, and they've seen that it's actually pretty effective um, the coffee tastes better because it's grown in the shade and it's not in direct sunlight um, which I think is really cool the idea that coffee kind of changes in flavor depending on how it's grown um, and so yeah I think that's a, a really cool thing to see but exactly with conventional agriculture it's kind of the opposite of let's just plug more chemicals into the system and, and see if it fixes everything. I think having that diversity of plants is really interesting. I always think about like, I think there are the three sister crops, you have corn, squash, and beans, if I have that correctly, where they all kind of coexist with each other. Like the beans can climb in the corn and like they balance the soil together. And I think that balance is really interesting to me and how people figure that out. Yeah, definitely. I think that is like the epitome of the kind of agroecology example that I've heard in a lot of courses is the three sisters. Um, and they totally they work off of each other. You have the corn that's kind of the stock that the beans can like climb up and the beans add nitrogen back into the soil, which the corn needs. Um, and so really kind of going back to our roots and a lot of indigenous groups have been doing this for ages um, and so I think a lot of agroecology is kind of learning from their ways what has been working and how we can work with nature instead of trying to solve it with new technology. Um, you mentioned earlier about kind of the issues with water and fertilizer runoff. I was wondering if there's anything within the field of agroecology. I know um, agriculture is a, a source that uses a lot of water. And I was wondering if there's any like pioneering irrigation systems that are being developed um, that seek to reduce the water use or 
kind of just like reshape how that's done? Yeah, um, there's quite a few things that are being tried out right now. Um, so one of them that comes to mind is um, the idea of cover cropping is not only to, so people plant cover crops kind of during um, the fallow period in between when they're like rotating their crops and it covers the ground. Um, and essentially it creates a, like a green mulch that can be cycled back into the soil. Um, but it also works um, if you wanted to do a cover crop underneath a crop that you're growing, it can keep the soil kind of um, more moist and retain some of that moisture so that you don't need to irrigate it as much. Um, so that's one kind of way that it's working today. Um, in terms of uh, reducing uh, water usage, so a lot of farms used to use like overhead spray systems and now they're using this um, new technology called drip irrigation. So it's using a lot less water and you just kind of, you run a line um, next to the crop that you're growing and it kind of just, it trickles out very slowly. Um, and essentially what it does is the farmer can control the flow of that water and it's kind of being applied more directly to the soil. So you're not losing a ton of it from evaporation. So that's a technological fix. And then kind of another fix of how to prevent some of the runoff from fertilizer if a farm has to use fertilizer um, is this idea of a buffer strip. So you will actually plant some trees or something that's going to absorb some of that water before it, it runs downhill. Or you'll kind of create a little bit of like a ditch area that's a buffer before any sort of waterway um, that can absorb some of those nutrients. So similar things to like a rain garden, things like that. So there's a bunch of different things that farmers can do. Obviously, some are a little bit easier than others. Um, and I think that's what makes it hard sometimes to transition is cost of doing those new things, as well as just changing things up. It's hard to do something that you've never done before. Maybe a bit tangential to agroecology, but I've been hearing a lot about instead of using other plants to provide that kind of shade cover using like solar panels or stuff or because I know one big issue with solar panels right now is that they use up a lot of land and then and once that land is taken up it's like there's nothing else being done on it there's just a bunch of solar panels sitting on it so I've heard this idea being thrown around of you can have some land dedicated to like your large array of solar panels, but then also figuring out ways to also grow like maybe raspberries under there or or like put the solar panels higher up on mounts and then kind of use that to grow crops that need a lot of shade. Yeah, I love that idea of kind of like multi-purpose land um, and especially, um, so this is kind of a, a fun fact. How much do you think farming or agriculture contributes to GHG emissions? Have you guys heard this number before? I have not. And GHG, you're referring to greenhouse gas, right? Correct. Yes. Greenhouse gas emissions. I have no idea. I imagine it's quite a lot considering that um, I feel like a lot of our pests or sorry, our fertilizers are like fossil fuel based so it takes I don't remember if the the Bornhaber process which actually like makes the nitrogen that goes into a lot of fertilizers I feel like that's probably pretty fossil fuel intensive 
I was going to say, if I had to guess, I, I agree. I feel like I would guess that agriculture probably contributes a lot. If I had to guess like a specific number, I'd say like 20 to 30%. That might be too much or too little, but I feel like it definitely contributes a lot. Yeah, definitely. So you're a little bit on the higher end, um, but it's it's closer to 15% of, of global anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. And a lot of that, you guys totally nailed it, is coming from the pesticides, it's coming from transportation, um, farmers using tractors, things that need fossil fuels to run, um, as well as, um, especially with cows, they're emitting a lot of methane as well. And so it is crazy that just by choosing what we want to eat, we can influence the emissions that are happening that are leading to climate change. And so, yeah, I love this idea, Ashwin, of kind of combating that in two ways in one go of um, creating, you know, a solar field where we can maybe power some of the farm operations and still grow the food that we need to consume. Um, so I think that's a really great use to kind of combine everything into one. Another thing I kind of wanted to touch on was maybe some of the political kind of consequences of agroecology. The way I've kind of viewed it is like agroecology or polyculture farming was something that indigenous people naturally did as they learned about their ecosystems and how to interact with that. And then that was kind of wiped out by colonialism. Um, I believe that European farming was... Is, is was traditionally monoculture. And I mean, I guess that makes sense if you're colonizing another land where you don't know anything about it and you need to like have a reliable source of food, it's probably just easier to kind of uh, shape the environment how you want and, and shape the land to work for you instead of trying to figure out how to work with it. But I'm curious to hear your view, but because I've always kind of viewed agroecology as something that's fundamentally like an anti-racist movement and also um, a, a process of decolonization to, to convert our farming practices back to those that indigenous people held. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think this is where agroecology is more of a movement kind of comes back into the definition. Um, I think a lot of the ways that we can learn from nature um, definitely come from indigenous groups that spent a lot of time respecting and valuing nature and just the natural processes that would lead to food production. And I definitely think that, you know, as the colonizers came in, it was definitely in their eyes just easier to like clear cut everything and start over without kind of learning more about the place that they had chosen to live and to grow things. And I think it is, we're kind of within the field of agroecology trying to take a step back a little bit and return to some of those more um, indigenous roots of things and respecting nature and learning from it. And I think we deviated a lot from that, more so during the Green Revolution. So that was kind of um, this period where the world ran into a panic of how are we going to feed our growing population. Um, we don't have enough food production to feed everybody, um, which is actually today is a fallacy. Um, we do produce enough food. It's just then it becomes kind of more social issues of how do we distribute the food to the people that need it. Um, so food scarcity and insecurity is a huge problem today. And I think a lot of the agroecology movement is trying to make sure that 
everybody has access to food and has access to healthy food and has the ability to grow their own food, has food sovereignty. Um, and so definitely, I think that's a huge part of agroecology as a field. And I think within the sciences, it kind of gets a little confusing um, because I think we're used to traditional like agriculture as more of like chemistry and biology um, and not really including some of those social sciences. Yeah, and I think one aspect of that, kind of the most more social aspect of agroecology, I think a lot of the agroecology scenarios that we talked about are large scale. But I think a lot of what, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of what agroecology is about is looking at how that, that can be done small scale, like in urban farms and stuff like that. And I was wondering, like, how much, how much of the importance lies with, like, reforming the industrial agriculture versus promoting like individual, um, like making your own farm in your backyard or promoting agriculture within smaller communities? Yeah, those are two great points. Um, so I think to your first point, I think yes, agroecology is kind of focusing more on these smaller scale farmers and trying to bring back a variety of producers. So I think a big problem we have today is that we just have these large corporations that are taking over a lot of the farmland in America and growing single variety of crops because on the large scale they're producing a lot of food. Um, but we've actually seen that small scale producers can produce enough food to feed all of us um, and they can do it in kind of a more um, sustainable way than these large scale operations. Um, and so I do think agroecology has kind of um, started and filled that niche of smaller farms. But we do see some exciting things happening on the larger scale, some larger partnerships. So one that I'm super stoked about, um, there is this uh, organization called the Land Institute, which has developed a, it's a perennial grain. Um, and so perennials are really great and a big area of study within agroecology because their root systems are really long. And so they actually maintain moisture in the soil, they maintain nutrients. Um, and you're not um, pulling them out each year, they kind of grow back. Um, and so they've developed this grain called Kernza um, and that has um, been used by Patagonia Provisions um, who partnered with them to develop a beer that's on the market that's using these grains that are grown in a very agroecological way. Um, and so it's really cool to see kind of a larger business operation that's investing time and resources into agroecology. So we do see it kind of in both capacities, but I do think that the food security part of agroecology does focus a little bit more on those smaller scale operations. Yeah, so that sounds like um, we talked about a ton of pretty cool stuff, I think over the past kind of 20 minutes. Um, I guess we're kind of all wondering for, for both us and any U of M students listening right now, um, what are the ways that we could maybe get involved in agroecology or learn more through the university? Yeah, definitely. There's a ton of opportunities. Um, so the first one that I wanted to highlight is uh, UMSFP has a sustainable food initiative. And so they've got a lot of really great agroecological courses, um, some kind of talking more about food justice issues. Um, so food literacy for all is a speaker series that happens every year. Um, and you can learn a lot about 
food systems in general, and they do cover agroecology, um, to things like learning about soil sciences. Um, so a wide variety of courses at U of M, um, and it just keeps growing, which is really cool to see. Um, getting involved with the U of M campus farm. Um, they do a lot of agroecological projects and um, employ a lot of the concepts that we've talked about on the farm. Um, so if you ever want to get your hands a little dirty, um, it's a great way to spend. I think they're on, they do it on like Fridays, there's volunteer days. Um, so definitely check that out. And then uh, the past couple years, there's been a course at the biological station, um, which is about all about agroecology. And you partner with um, two farms in northern Michigan and learn about all of the agroecology on the farm. So a lot of really cool courses to get involved with. There's also a bunch of student organizations as well that are looking into the food system. Um, and you'll find some agroecology niches in all of those. Yeah, sounds, sounds really interesting. I know that as I'm excited to, if we get back in person over the fall to get more involved in the campus farm and maybe volunteer there a bit. But I think with that, um, now we'll throw it over to Emma for our nature fact of the week. Yeah, I also would love to plug the campus farm. It's so much fun. The work days are just like a great way to get outside and learn a ton. So if you're interested in doing it, it's really fun and it's like really easy to get involved. But our fun nature fact of the day is that there is a kind of tree, it's called an acacia tree. I'm not entirely sure if that's how you pronounce it. Um, in Africa that giraffes like to eat. And when the giraffes like take a bite out of the tree, the tree emits like a warning gas and it emits it so that the other trees of the same species nearby will also know that there is a giraffe coming to eat their leaves. So they'll all together communicate and release like this toxin that makes the giraffes not want to eat their leaves anymore. And I just feel like that's a really cool example of how like trees communicate with each other and how nature is like way more complicated than we might think. I just think it's cool to think of, of trees talking to each other and helping each other out. And if you want to learn more about stuff like this, um, there's this book. It's called The Hidden Life of Trees, and it's really good. And it's so fascinating to learn about how plants and trees communicate with each other and how complex forests really are. And with that, I think we're going to wrap it up for the day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast, and we will see you again soon. Thank you.